If you ever go to Japan, on the hillsides along the ocean of Japan, there are stone markers, and some of them are over 600 years old. And on the markers, there are engraved warnings about tsunamis. You see, the markers tell the Japanese people not to build their dwellings below this part of the mountain because if a tsunami comes, you're going to be in big trouble. Gave them a heads up. And as Japan progressed into a modern culture with its technology and wealth, people disregarded those warnings. Instead, they started building their homes closer and closer to the ocean. They figured out that all the warnings that they had would prepare them in advance. They figured that all their intelligence, their technology, the seawalls, and the early warning systems would protect them. And of course, we learned a few years ago that wasn't the case. In spite of all the rocks, the stones that were up there, they did not heed the warning they gave. And according to the latest estimates, the recent tsunami killed 1,600 people. So people disregarded the warning from their ancient ancestors about tsunamis, and all of us watched in horror as we saw the devastating result of what happened. And they were incredibly humbled by the power of the ocean that just came in and just swept everything away. That event reminds us that we live in a world that is marked by chaos. You don't know when your world is going to be destroyed, when a wave is going to come and wipe everything away, whether it's a tsunami in Japan or in Indonesia, which is even worse, which, which killed hundreds of thousands of people. It could be a hurricane in the Gulf or something closer to home, like an unemployment letter or a bad diagnosis on your health or the end of a marriage, or more specifically, in regard to our immediate time right now, a pandemic. And the reality is, at some point, we will all realize that this world is chaotic and unpredictable, and we're susceptible to all kinds of things, and that's what this pandemic reminds us of, that we are not in control. All of our intelligence, sophistication, everything else, that ultimately our world can be chaotic. You don't know when your world's going to be destroyed. You don't know when a wave is going to come in and wipe everything out. So we need some kind of hope. So the question I want to ask this morning is this. Given that frightening reality of our present situation, where do we find hope? Where does hope come from in a world marked by chaos and disorder? Is there a solid rock to stand on when the waves come rushing in? So we're going to explore different passages of the Bible that give us some insights about how we might respond and where we might find hope. So the first thing I want to look at in regard to the question that we just posed is this, is that God is our only source of hope. You see, the ancient Israelites, like the ancient Japanese, they viewed the ocean or the sea as a realm of chaos and disorder. And many of us think about the ocean as a place of peace. You go on vacation, you look at the ocean, it's beautiful, there's recreation there, there's a beach, and that's true. But in the ancient world, the Israelites didn't see the ocean that way. They didn't go in boats in the way that we might. They were afraid of the ocean. They believed that the ocean was a realm of chaos and disorder and destruction, and it stood in opposition to their God, who was a God of order and beauty. So throughout the scriptures of the ancient Israelites, the ocean is always seen as a realm of evil. In creation, God brought complete order out of chaos. In the opening scene of the Bible, we're told this. In the works of Genesis chapter 1, 1, he said, The world is formless and void, and that darkness was over the surface of the deep. We find in that passage a formless world, an endless abyss, a dark and ominous place. 
But the writer of Genesis goes on to say that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. And then God speaks as he separates the water from the land. He separates day and night. And as the process of creation continues, God puts order in a world that had previously been formless. And so that by the end of the creation account, there's a perfectly ordered world that God declares and said, it is good. And then at the end of the creation account, God establishes a garden where he puts man and woman. Eden is the complete opposite of that primordial chaos that the ocean had in the beginning. It's a place of order and beauty and abundance. It represents the opposite of the early creation. God triumphing over the chaos, bringing complete order where before there had been complete disorder. Now, immediately after that, Genesis tells us that God places a man and a woman in the garden, and then he gives them a command. He said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and fill it. Humanity was supposed to take God's work of ordering the world and he was expanded far beyond Eden so that the entire world would be a place of order and beauty and abundance. But of course, the man and the woman didn't follow through with the command. Instead, they rebelled against God. They decided that they wanted to rule the world without him, and they plunged the world into chaos. Because of that rebellion against God, we now live in a universe that tends to go from order to chaos rather than the opposite. In scientific terms, we call it the second law of thermodynamics. Things move from order to chaos when they're left alone. Everything deteriorates. Everything decays. Everything is winding down, so to speak. But another thing that we observe is this, that we worship a God who is in the process of bringing order out of chaos. We worship a God who isn't content to leave the world in its place as it is. And just as he did at the beginning of creation, where he hovered over the chaotic ocean and drew order out of it, he is in the process of bringing order out of chaos. This theme continues throughout the Bible and its emphasis on the good versus evil. And the good is represented by God's power over even the most evil things that can happen. Listen to what the psalmist says about this. Two different psalms speak of God's power over the sea. For instance, Psalm 93 says this, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, but mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, is the Lord Almighty on high. Or how about Psalm 77 says this, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw that they were afraid, indeed the deep trembled. Even the ocean fears God as he brings order out of chaos. Each of these psalms, like many others, speaks of the power of God as being more mighty than the sea. The psalmist is saying that God is more powerful than the chaos that surrounds us. He can bring order out of chaos. He can bring beauty where there's ugliness. He's the only one who has the power to do that. Another thing to observe is this, that we have to understand that hope is found in God alone. The message we have to understand about hope is that it's not to be found in anything in this world. God is the one who can speak to the waters and separate them. God is the one who can triumph over the seas. He is the one who brings order out of chaos. In all of our brilliance and humanity, we're limited in our capacity to do that. And this pandemic reveals that to us. Let me tell you an interesting story that I'll come back to several times throughout this sermon. In 1815, a man named James Riley was a merchant captain from Connecticut who left his family and took command of a ship called the Commerce. 
which at the time was one of the most largest and most advanced and strongest ships in the American fleet. Riley was a very experienced sea captain, so he had no fear of the ocean. He had been at sea since he was 15 years old. He knew the world's oceans very well, but on this one voyage where they entered into a dark fog in the middle of the night and they blew off course near the north coast of Africa and the commerce shipwrecked near Cape Bohador in Africa. And in the morning, the crews woke up and they saw they were shipwrecked and Riley reported that they couldn't go to shore because it was filled with violent savages who were already starting to salvage parts of the ship. And so they only had one option, and that was to head back to sea. But the problem was there were 20-foot-high sea breakers all along the Cape. And Riley knew there was no way they were going to be able to take a lifeboat from their shipwrecked ship into the open sea and get through those high breakers. But he knew they either had to be eaten alive by those cannibalistic savages or go out to sea. So they filled their lifeboat with supplies and they started rowing toward the breakers. Now Riley didn't believe in God. He wasn't a man of faith. He didn't believe that God was actively involved in the affairs of the world. But as he got closer and closer to those breakers, he told the men in the boat to take off their hats. And then Riley offered up the following prayer. And it goes like this. Great creator and preserver of the universe who now sees our distress, we pray thee to spare our lives and permit us to pass through this overwhelming surf to the open sea. But if we are doomed to perish, thy will be done. We commit our souls to the mercy of thee, our God, who gave them. And then Riley, as he finished his prayer, the wind stopped at a 20-yard gap emerged in the breakers where they were able to row right through as the sea continued to roar on either side of them with waves 20 foot high. Sometime later, Riley wrote a book about his adventures at sea and included the story. But his publishers begged him not to include the story because it was so fantastical and miraculous that nobody would believe it. And Riley at one level agreed and he knew the story didn't make sense. But he insisted on including it. And here's what he wrote. He said, I cannot suppress or deny which so clearly appeared to me and to my companions as the immediate and merciful act of the Almighty. Listening to our prayers and granting our petitions at this, the awful moment when dismay, despair, and death were pressing close upon us, my heart still glows with holy gratitude for his mercy, and I will never be ashamed nor afraid to acknowledge and make known to the world the infinite goodness of my divine creator and preserver. James Riley learned what the psalmist said. God brings order out of chaos. He alone has triumphed over the sea. He has dominated everything in this world and dominates even the chaotic world that we live in and the evil that prevails. And my point is this, our hope is to be found in God alone, not in our experience, not in our technology, not in our early warning systems against tsunamis, not in our wealth, not in any of these things, because in a moment, the world can sweep in and take it all away. The coronavirus epidemic reminds us of this reality. And all of our wisdom and knowledge and all of our wealth and abundance and all of our works and advancements, we still find that a crisis can happen that is outside our control and cripple even the world's most advanced and civilized societies. And during such times, we cannot place our hope in all the wisdom of man and what they can do. We need to place it in the one who reigns over it all, 
there's a second response I want to look at, a second point to note regarding the question, where can we find hope in the midst of crisis? And it's this, is that God is with us through the chaos. God is with us all throughout the seasons of chaos that we will encounter. Apart from this simple idea that hope is found in God alone, the scriptures have a lot more to say. After the opening scene in Genesis where God brings order out of chaos, a few chapters later, we read another story about the sea in Genesis chapter 6. Noah has been preserved in the ark and a few others, a remnant, while the rest of the world is destroyed in the flood. God protects them and saves them through it. Then, at the very beginning of Exodus, we read about the Pharaoh who orders all the Hebrew babies to be thrown into the Nile and to be killed. But one of them is preserved, Moses in a little basket is preserved through the waters. The story of Moses is a retelling of the story of Noah on a micro scale. God protects one little child through the waters. Of course, Moses then grows up and redeems and rescues God's people from Egypt. And how does that happen? Remember, they're up against the sea on the one side and Pharaoh's army on the other side. And a mighty wind comes, and the sea separates, and his people walk out on dry land. And then the Pharaoh's army goes into the sea to chase after them, and the waters then cover over them and destroys the army. And just like the story of Noah, the evil ones are destroyed by the sea. And now as you read these stories, keep in mind not just that God brings us hope over chaos, but he triumphs over the sea, and but that God is also with us as we pass through the sea. Another way of thinking about this is found in Isaiah, where everything is chaotic. And when we appear to be trapped without hope, and these words of Isaiah 43, 2 make sense. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. The imagery of God's presence about this is clear. His people are protected all throughout the scriptures. The idea is simple. There are times when we cry to God and he immediately delivers us in our chaos and there, there are times when it appears he doesn't answer us immediately. And at that moment, hope comes from the conviction that God can triumph over the sea and that is also with us as we pass through it. As Isaiah said, I will be with you when you pass through the sea. Our God is with us. Another point to note is this. The one who calmed the seas is the one who separates the sea from the land at the beginning. In Mark 4, Jesus and his disciples get in a boat. You might know the story. You've heard it before. They get in a boat and a terrible storm strikes them on the Sea of Galilee. And they wake up and Jesus because they're frightened to death. They're going to sink. They're going to drown. And Jesus speaks a word. He says, peace be still. And the storm ceases. It's calm. And then his friends look at him and say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They didn't quite get it yet. The only one in the boat with them is the same one who separated the sea from the land at the beginning and the same one who protected Noah through the flood, the same one who delivered Moses from the Nile, the same one who delivered Israelites through the Red Sea. He is the one who is with us when we pass through the waters. So when hope doesn't seem obvious, we need to remember that God is with us. So when chaos appears to be winning, we find hope in the fact that God is there. He doesn't abandon us. 
He doesn't leave us. He's with us in our boat in the midst of chaos, and therefore we don't have to be afraid. We can be at peace even in the worst of the storms. He is with us in a pandemic, and he will deliver us once again, as he always has. Let's return to the story of James Riley. You see, when he was finally able to get through those breakers out into the open sea, they only had a few days worth of supplies, and when they ran out, they also ran out of hope. They couldn't find a safe port, so eventually they had to row back onto the shore. And when they did, those savages that he was afraid of were waiting for them. And one of his men was almost instantly killed, and the others were bound. They were stripped naked. They were thrown in, into some camels and headed out into the desert. And eventually, Riley and his crew were sold as slaves, and they spent the next years traveling through North Africa desert where they were treated cruelly and put into hard labor. His weight went from 240 pounds to 90 pounds. I don't recommend his diet plan. It, it was successful, but not the way to go. The things they did to try to survive are too graphic to share this morning. After a year in these circumstances, he thought, I'm never going to get home. I'll never see my wife and children again in, in Connecticut. He knew he was going to die. But as he was traveling in a caravan along the Sahara Desert, he shared his story with another traveler in the group, a Muslim man. As this Muslim heard James Riley sharing this story about God's deliverance from the sea, this Muslim rebuked Riley for giving up hope and for despairing. Listen to what the Muslim man said to Riley. He said this, Dare you distrust the power of that God who has preserved you for so long by his miracles? No, my friend. The God of heaven and earth is your friend, and he will not forsake you. And from the mouth of this Muslim came a deep biblical truth. Your God will not forsake you. He is your friend. God is with us as we travel through these waters. Though chaos and despair seem to win, we must not give up hope because he has not abandoned us. These words gave Riley hope to persevere, to fight, and to hope. You see, there are going to be seasons in life, guaranteed, when hope doesn't seem obvious. Deliverance doesn't come immediately when the waves of the sea overwhelm us and when the chaos seems to be winning. And in those scenarios, we need to remember that God is with us. He has not abandoned us. He's in the boat with us. And if that's the case, we don't have to be afraid. We can still be at peace. We can still be at calm because he's there. There's a third and final response to a question. Where can we find hope in the midst of a crisis? And that is this. God will triumph over evil. Throughout the Bible, there's a metaphor that, that's a picture of God speaking and calming to the seas, but this metaphor reaches its culmination in the book of Revelation, a book I preached on some months ago, a book that culminates with the victory of God over all of history and over everything. There's an interesting account from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation as he's given this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And in Revelation 21, almost in a side comment, John makes an observation. And as he observes the new heavens and the new earth, here's what he says. The sea will be no more. Now that can only be understood if you understand the Israelites' view of the sea and the chaos that it represented. You see, in this perfected creation, evil and chaos will be completely eradicated. Does it mean in the perfected creation there's going to be no ocean, no water, or no sea? I think it's metaphorical. 
especially when you understand the theme of the ocean throughout Scripture, as we referred to earlier. What John is saying is that in this perfected creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no realm for evil. The forces of chaos and evil will be completely eradicated. They're not going to be there anymore. Everything will be ordered and perfect and beautiful. Everything wrong in the world will be set right. Of course, he's writing this to the first century Christians who are experiencing deep and terrible persecution beyond anything we could conceive of. And he's offering this glimpse of hope that the day is coming when everything is going to be made right. You won't be under threat anymore by any force. God will triumph over all. Another point we can notice that the day is coming when our desires will be fulfilled. Everything will be made right, not just for us, but the passage in the New Testament is that this hope will be fulfilled in all of creation. That's what Paul writes in Romans 8. He says, it isn't just we who long to be liberated from sin and evil in this world. He goes on, he says, that the whole of creation groans in anticipation for the day when it will be set free from chaos and evil and sin. And until that day... Paul tells us we have to hang on to this truth that all things will work together for the good of those who love God and called according to his purposes. And a final point to notice this. Despite all the chaos, as we worship a God who brings goodness from intended evil, you see, despite all the chaos and terrible things you see in this world, the things you might be experiencing, you have to believe that the day is coming when all of that is going to be taken up and transformed into goodness. And all that chaos, all that evil, all the tsunamis, all the floods, all the diseases, all the brokenness, all the pandemics is somehow going to be taken up by God and turned into good. We'll see we'll be no more. The chaos is going to be eliminated. Let's return again to James Riley. In 1816, James Riley was eventually redeemed from slavery by an English man named William Wilshire who bought him for $920 and two shotguns. And Riley ended up getting back to Connecticut, to his home. He was reunited with his wife and his children. The next year, he wrote a book about his experience. It's called Sufferings in Africa. If you want to read a good book, a little archaic in the wording, but it's a, it's a great story. You see, good came from his crazy experience. You know, if it just ended there, you think that Riley was in captivity in Africa was unfortunate and all the suffering was meaningless it was terrible and we're glad he got out but God ended up taking this terrible experience and bringing good from it you see the good that came from it is that Riley changed his life and spent the remaining days he had fighting for the liberation of the slaves in America here he was a white American who had become a slave in Africa and because of that experience, he came back and realized he needed to help free the African slaves in America. And he wrote this in his book, Adversity has taught me some noble lessons. I have now learned to look with compassion on my enslaved and oppressed fellow creatures, and I will exert my remaining facilities and endeavors to redeem the enslaved and to break to pieces the rods of oppression. That's what he did. He worked the remaining years of his life to fight for the freedom of the American slaves. And in 1817, his book became a national bestseller. For the first time, many white Americans were, were giving a glimpse of slavery through the eyes of one of their own. And it transformed many of the attitudes and opinions Americans had about slavery. 
And a young lawyer in Illinois picked up a copy of the book. His name was Abraham Lincoln. And he said that apart from the Bible, James Riley book informed his political ideology more than anything else that he had ever read. And it was Lincoln who then ended up liberating and emancipating the slaves. Does God, does our God, bring order out of chaos? Does he bring beauty from ashes? Does he bring goodness from what others intended for evil? Of course he does. That's why we worship him. That's why we share this moment together, even though it's online. We share it together because that is our great hope. So we have these three simple truths. First, hope is to be found in God alone. He is mightier than the sea and has a power greater than any in this world. Second, when it appears that chaos is winning, God is with us as we pass through the waters. He's in our boat. We don't have to be afraid. And third, the day is coming when the sea will be no more. Our hope is temporary because the day is coming when everything will be made right. You see, the tsunami markers in Japan were intended to remind people of the dangers of building close to the shore so that any day an unexpected tsunami could come and wipe everything away and they was tell them be alert in a similar way the story of the bible is a reminder or a marker so to speak of the potential for chaos to enter into our world and the need to put our hope in god alone these last few weeks we have seen such a metaphorical tsunami hit us with the contravirus and the message of the bible the marker so to speak is a reminder of what we should do at such a time, just as they did at all the other times when the waters were in chaos. We trust in the God who can bring order out of chaos. I want you to take a moment, identify where there is chaos in your life. It could be from innumerable sources, but one that we all share together as a group is this pandemic that leaves us without work, that brings questions about economy, that keeps us in our homes. Are you putting your trust in God and in alone, who's mightier than the sea? Are you feeling God's absence in your life? You need to be reminded that He's actually with you as you pass through these waters. Or do you need to have your vision lifted beyond your immediate circumstances to that day when all will be made right? Take a few minutes. Commune with your God. Find your hope in Him. Let's all pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you bring order out of chaos and that you are there with us whatever we are going through. And right now, Lord, we're all sitting in our homes. We can't even meet together. We don't know when the next job will come up, when our work will come place, things will get back together to normal. We have no clue. But you're there with us. And we know that you will eventually bring us back to order because that's who you are, a God of order. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.